to Touch and Earth, your guide to conservation-focused travel. I'm Lawrence. And I'm Phoebe. And today we're going to be talking to Andrew de Bloch. Hey, everyone. There you go. There you go. Hey. Hey, how are we doing? Cool. So I think just to start things off, do you want to give us a little introduction about yourself, sort of who you are, where you are, what you're doing? Right. Um, yeah, my name is Andrew de Bloch. I'm, I'm working for a conservation NGO called BirdLife South Africa. We're the, the biggest uh, bird-focused conservation NGO in the country and one of the conservation leaders in the NGO space. And I am a scientist by training, um, but I am now in a different position as the AV Tourism Project Manager. So AV Tourism is just any tourism related to birds, bird-based tourism. Uh, and yeah, I, I joined BirdLife 33 years ago, um, actually as a penguinologist. So I was uh, running a, a research project. Is that the official term? Yeah. Is that what it's actually called? <laughs> that's, a, that's a real thing. Um, yeah, penguinology, the study of penguins. So that's I was amazing. doing a research project um, using GPS trackers to study their foraging behavior and then feed that back for conservation purposes in terms of protecting their important foraging sites. And then this position came up um, as a new position within BirdLife South Africa and just really aligned with what I wanted to do. Um, like I said, I'm a scientist by training, but I actually have worked as a bird guide, kind of uh, semi-professionally while I was studying um, at UCT. So I'm passionate about tourism and I'm passionate about tourism and conservation involving local communities, which is really um, the focus of, of our project. Yeah. Out of curiosity, was your was your studies when you were in university more uh, focused on ornithology based, or uh, was it more on conservation field? So I, well, I studied at, at University of Cape Town. Um, I did my BSc uh, honors and masters in science all there. Um, my masters was through the Fitzpatrick Institute of African Ornithology, or the Fitzitute, as uh, we call it. <laughs> Um, yeah, Phoebe is giving us a, a whoop whoop. Um, that's actually where we that's where we met. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, so my thesis was uh, science based. Obviously, um, I was looking at the effects of boat based tourism on water birds at De Play, which is a, a Ramsar oh. wetland. So it's recognised globally for its importance for water bird populations. Um, so I had three chapters. The first two were very science heavy and looking at behavioral interactions and things like that. And the third chapter was literally a, a list of management guidelines for running eco-friendly boat tours. So I had a really nice mix between conservation and kind of pure science. Um, but I, I, I always liked the idea that science should be applied. Um, there is space for kind of blue sky science and just knowing things for knowing sake. Um, but uh, I, I prefer it, especially when there's, you know, urgent need for, you know, answering questions with, you know, scientific-based evidence. Science, science should be applied wherever possible and, and kind of towards answering conservation questions. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that applied part of my studies. Awesome. I could not agree more. Like, that's a huge thing that I believe in is that we need to, that science for science's sake is just, could be a waste in some some capacities. So what was your like key finding of your work in De Hoop? Was there like one major message that you need to sort of, or like you felt you needed to pass on to the, the management and the boat, boat um, tour organizers? Yeah, so I was answering um, 
two broad questions. So the first was, uh, which birds are most susceptible to kind of disturbance effects? So which are going to be least tolerant of the boats? Um, well, three questions. So that first one, will they get used to the boats? Will they habituate? Is the other question. And then the third one was looking at differences between different kinds of boat tours. So I was looking firstly at kind of motorized, the big pontoon boat or kind of booze cruise style, you know, sunset barge cruises on the flay mm-hmm. and bird watching trips. So very, very slow, but still, you know, noisy electrical engine and things like that. Um, and also then at kayak-based tours. So the idea being that kayaks are, you know, much less noisy, less kind of you know, obtrusive in the landscape um, and looking at how the birds differed in their responses to that. So the first, um, the first question, which birds were most uh, disturbed by the boats? Um, generally the larger birds, so like pelicans and, and great-crested greaves and, and the larger cormorants and geese and things like that. Smaller birds tended to let you get a little bit closer. And there's a few kind of ecological reasons for that. Obviously, it's a lot more energy for a bigger bird to to get out of there, and they have a bigger risk because of that. So yeah. they generally will move off at greater distances. Um, in terms of habituating, there was very limited evidence for habituation. A little bit of evidence, but there are kind of some um, external factors that might have been influencing why some birds were more you know, tolerant than others. I mean, birds have personalities and are individuals as well. So you get more brave birds, less brave birds, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third one, I mean, so, so what would your guys' prediction be, you know, big boats versus kayaks? What would you think would be the difference? See, like, in, like instinctively, I would say a big boat, but then I wonder if the kayaks get closer to the sort of nesting sites and like closer to the banks, I guess. And maybe then they'd have more of an effect. I don't know. What would you think? I mean, going off straight assumption, I would assume that a kayak would get closer just because of the noise interference. But then again, you know, if a, if a bird has learned that big boats equal food, habituation could mean that they would be a little bit more inclined to go to a bigger boat because they know that they could get a reward from it. So I'm actually on the fence. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't know unless I actually spent a bit of time watching it. And unfortunately, I haven't really had a chance. So I suppose the, the question is... Um, Turn back to you. What is the answer on that? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we had we, we had assumed as well that the bigger boat, because it's more noisy and, and more visually, um, you know, obvious, um, that would be more of a disturbance. And it, it actually turned out the complete opposite. So the the, the birds reacted much more violently and, and further away to the kayak approach than from this big kind of metal square object coming at them, um, which was the big pontoon boat. And yeah, that was surprising. Um, I think yeah. you know, the operators were banking on running kayak tours and, and maybe were a bit more skeptical about the bigger boat. Um, and I guess the reason, you know, we, we think the noise is a disturbance factor, but actually the noise kind of lets the birds know that the boat is coming and there's less of a surprise. Um, they can get used to that. Whereas the kayak is like this stealthy, very low to the water, you know, object. And you can see a human in a kayak. It's not so easy in a bigger boat. Um, you know, they can pick up a face and eyes and all that. So it's almost like the kayak is more of a viable, you know, predator threat. I think, I mean, that's, that's conjecture, that's hypothesis. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting study and, and quite interesting outcomes. That's actually super interesting because there's been a lot of um, debates of whether we introduce sort of electric vehicles into the bush rather than your big old 
Land Rover that's really noisy. And I think a big argument against it is you then start surprising animals and a surprised elephant doesn't tend to be a happy elephant and really that noise of the car coming along that they're used to and that it, it just gives them a bit of time to be like, okay, cool, we know what it is, we're happy with that sound rather than boom, suddenly there's a car mm. and there's people and you, you shock an animal, which never yeah. turns out well. When, um, when you, that's really when you, interesting. When you startle an animal, I mean, with a bird, it's that, that, that flight or fight response um, generally, a bird's not, not going to attack you. A bird will fly away. But when you're dealing with mm-hmm. elephants and rhinos and lions, that, that fight or flight might actually backfire on you quite a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it does change the tone somewhat. Yeah, and, and the noise, I mean, it is dis- disruptive and disturbing to the animals, but it's something that they can get used to. And then they, they yeah. start, you know, they, they realize that it's not a threat to them. They, they can kind of start to tolerate it. But a silent vehicle, mm-hmm. I think, would be... Yeah, I mean, again, you think it would be less disruptive, but actually it can be a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think sort of going off your work in De Hoop, it really presented an interesting argument for me. So um, as part of Thatch and Earth and sort of personally, I have quite a big issue with the big five and reserves selling themselves on having the big five. Um, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on sort of how birding can open up spaces that wouldn't necessarily attract your traditional sort of safari in quotes tourist because the hoop doesn't have the big five but it's absolutely spectacular and i wonder if the reserve does just as well with bird birding tourists or whether it finds that it's still struggling because it's not got that sort of megafauna that were that most people are told to look out for on their trip to southern africa mm, it is an interesting one um the, the Big Five has been such an effective marketing tool for for wildlife-based tourism in South Africa. I mean, just the proliferation of reserves around that low-fault area is just staggering, and the numbers of people that go through there. But I definitely think um, people miss out by just going you know, on the blinkers, and that's all they want to see. They want to see lions and leopards and rhinos and elephants. I mean, those are all spectacular things to see, don't get me wrong. But there's so much more to offer out there, and that's that's very kind of focused tourism. Um, if people kind of broaden out to, you know, enjoying, I mean, the ecology of South Africa is so amazing. Like the different habitats that you can get to, and I mean, just not even getting into the bird life. I mean, we've got over 850 species of birds in South Africa. I mean, there's and everywhere you go, there's going to be some kind of special bird to see. So birders, you know, we we travel to some pretty crazy places, and that that. That does help to spread out, you know, the the economic trickle down away from these concentrated areas, you know, these these big game reserves. In the Western Cape, we don't have as much of the Big Five kind of attraction, but we have a whole lot of other stuff to offer. Um, so it's important to, I mean, I think that that attraction to the local kind of Big Five safari will never go away. I mean, that's always going to be there, mm-hmm. but there's huge potential for growth outside of that and, and being able to spread that to uh, communities and rural uh, sites that you know are, are more spread out and, and have we can have a huge community impact by spreading tourism to those areas. And like I said, there's massive, massive opportunities for growth there. Um, we've just got to wake people up to those opportunities, I guess. Definitely. I think one of the the questions I would have to ask you then is if you were 
able to persuade somebody to not look at the big five and let's say look at birding for instance but novice never done it before in their life how would you say they should start getting into birding so birding is 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 pretty accessible to anyone i mean to start all you really need is a, a pair of binoculars and a, and a bird book or a camera and a bird book some people don't even use binoculars these days um so it's you know and then you then you're away then you're birding um and and birding i mean there's there's crazy people out there who'll, who'll fly from cape town to gaborone to see a special bird um, but there's also people who just enjoy seeing the birds in their back garden at the feed them. so there's a whole there's a spectrum of different people who do birding and where you want to fit in on that spectrum is totally up to you um but if you're a total novice and, and you're not sure what to do, the best thing is to get out there with someone who is more experienced and knows what you're looking at and, and what you're looking for and how to find those things um, to show you the ropes. And, I mean, if you're not going to go out with uh, a friend or something like that, then hiring a local guide is the, the, the absolute best option. I mean, so, so BirdLife South Africa has a network of guides that we've, we've trained up and we call them our community bird guides. And... Uh, we basically our model has been to go into communities adjacent to important birding sites, um, especially in uh, Mpumalanga, Limpopo, and KZN. That's kind of where our, our main nodes are at the moment. I'm looking to extend that as kind of part of you know, my contribution to this new position. And we we take these these individuals out of these communities and train them up from complete scratch to become professional freelance bird guides. Um, and we keep good communications with them. We help them out with marketing and um, soft skills training and business management and things like that. Um, so, so looking for someone, someone like that who, who needs the business and has the skills and um, knows those local patches intimately is the best way to do it. So just getting, you know, thinking back on my own birding, I want to call it a career, but just the growth of my hobby, um, yeah, definitely. There's there's a few individuals that stand out, and some of the best birding experiences I've had have been with, you know, local guides. So yeah, I, I, that would be my advice. Definitely, I mean, local guides they they can make or break your your trip, um, and usually it's those those local guys that show you the those inner little ropes that have been quite intricate when it comes to the the birding world. I mean. Uh, Phoebe and I, when we were in St. Lucia, we, we met a met a chap, um, for the love of me, I can't remember his name exactly, but he, he took us through and showed us some amazing things, but we would never have known that was there if it just wasn't for him. And I mean, we walked on the same path the day before, and he was just like, no, but if we stop here, and, and before you know it, it changed our experience completely. And um, just to touch on that a little bit more, when you say that um, you offer this uh, soft skill package, so to speak, plus a, a bunch of other different skills in, co- in combination, would you say that that's more of a qualification that you guys offer if you make it into this program? So, uh, yeah, we do offer them accredited qualifications. They come out of the courses with, um, well, we've been using the Fogasa Level 1 Nature Guiding qualification um, in the last few years. We are looking at uh, building our own bird guide um, specialist course, um, but that's that's a long road to follow in terms of building a curriculum and getting it accredited and things like that. So, so what we've been doing in terms of training is using the base qualification of the Pagasa Level One Nature Guide, and then building onto that with extra um, skills in birds and birding identification and biology, 
And then a lot of these guys, I mean, they've, they've got a matric certificate, but they don't have um, knowledge around how to run a business, how to deal with taxes, how to interact with clients. Um, often there's quite a big cultural divide. These guys are, you know, they've been brought up in, in very rural areas and they're now they're, they're dealing with high net worth Americans who are coming on to South Africa. You know, how do you bridge that cultural divide and make sure that you, mm-hmm. you're giving the mm-hmm. Americans an experience that they're going to value and you can, you know, translate, you know, what you know here to something that they'll understand and appreciate. Um, so, you know, working out those, those little soft skills is, is really, I'd say, as important, if not more important to the, you know, making a good bird guide than the actual bird identification and, and that kind of thing. Um, so that's, 100%. yeah, we, we try and get as all around uh, training as possible, kind of on top of the required accredited courses for them to be registered guides. Absolutely. Um, So as I think we're all horribly aware, the tourism industry across the world has taken a major hit this year because of COVID. How are um, the bird guides as a whole unit coping with um, the COVID lockdown? Um, Is it affecting your training of them? How's that all going? So the coronavirus pandemic has been devastating for our community bird guides. These are guys who generally support large families, uh, including their own kids and often their parents and often nieces and nephews as well. Um, they are people who don't have a lot of savings um, backed up for emergencies such as this. I think this caught everyone unawares and included. So BirdLife South Africa had to do something about this. Um, these are people that we care a lot. We have very good relationships with them. They are key service providers for our birding community Um, and it was just the right thing to do so we came up with the community bird guide relief fund we kick-started it with 20,000 rand of our own funding and then basically went through a crowdfunding appeal to the birding communities and nature loving communities at large asking for contributions and I'm really glad to say that the response has been Absolutely phenomenal. Um, We have now about 40 guides being supported by this relief fund with monthly contributions. Um, So it it doesn't appear like a lot of money, uh, but these are amounts that are probably three, four times the family grants that a lot of people in their communities live off. So it is a meaningful amount of money. It covers all the essential costs, such as food, water, medicine, electricity, um, a part of rent. Uh, so the guides have just been immensely grateful. I've got, I've been inundated with messages, uh, especially photographs of full shopping trolleys, full of um, food items and, and baby food and things like that. And every month when those monthly contributions go off, the guides are just, so effusive in their thanks and um, they're they're just so grateful to everyone who's contributed to the fund so if you are listening to this and you have contributed know that it is meaningful it makes a big difference in these people's lives and they are very very grateful for it Um, if anyone wants to contribute any more to the relief fund um, they can do so Uh, the easiest way to to do it is to visit our website, birdlife.org today, and search for the Community Bird Guide Relief Fund. Um, we are still taking contributions. At the moment, we have 
enough funds in the pot to keep up these monthly payments probably until October, definitely September, probably October. Um, we are hoping to get them through to November or December because that's when we think that our guides will be able to start working meaningfully. Um, I think we're all a little bit uncertain about the horizons uh, for tourism reopening and things like that. But we are still taking donations, so please, if you have some spare money lying around, I know that's, that's not a common thing at the moment. Everyone's been hit really hard by this pandemic. Um, it's a really nice thing to contribute towards. Um, in, in the meantime, while the guides are not working, I've just been trying to keep their morale up, keep their skill levels up. Um, I've organized for them to get some uh, free bird apps, which would be prohibitively expensive otherwise. So um, a big thank you to Robert's Birds, uh, Sassel Birds and Bird Pro for offering their apps free of charge to our guides. That is uh, immense generosity and will make a big difference to them and their ability to learn about new birds and also to educate clients when they take them out. So we've also been working on some remote soft skills training and things like that just to keep them sharp. So the guides are not sitting idle um, and yeah, the wheels will still turn until tourism can resume. Wow, that's that's really inspiring and it's it's quite humbling to hear that you know even the even the bigger companies out there are really looking looking after after their own and i can imagine for guides right now it's a very very intense place to be you know only expecting to get work in november december oh that that that's really tough and it's again it's really really amazing to hear that you guys are going the extra mile and making sure that your guides are as comfortable as they can be in a situation that is really tough to be in so if it does resonate with anybody else who's listening to this and they, you feel like you could um, help out or contribute in some way, we'll make sure we leave that information so you can get in touch with BirdLife and you know, hopefully help somebody else out who's, who's in a bit of need. I know that we all kind of need a little bit of, bit of a shoulder to lean on at the moment in time. So if you feel like you have the opportunity to provide that for someone else, that would be really appreciated, I can tell you that. And I mean, the bird, the birding industry as a whole is very, is very closely knit, and it's it's quite an amazing field to be in. And I think one of the biggest things is that it really allows you to explore the world in ways that most people wouldn't really, you know, view it as an exciting experience. I think best way to describe that is like one of the best places I think Phoebe and I have come to really grow and love and explore is the sewage works in Cape Town. Yep. Best birding around. <laughs> and I mean, like, to explain that to somebody is pretty hard, you know? It like, sounds uh, so wrong. Like, you shouldn't be going to a search works on a Saturday morning, but it's worth it, guys. It's really, really it's cool. Really worth it. I mean, the, the smell is definitely not great. <laughs> but if you can put that aside, the birding is unbelievable. And I think that, that that's one of the most beautiful things about birding is, is you can do it anywhere, provided that you're open to the experience. And... I think one of the more interesting questions that I'd really like to get to know from you particularly is what would be your most memorable bird sighting? And it doesn't have to be the rarest, although obviously rare is cool. Um, what is the one sighting that really stuck with you, that resonated with you and you know made you think, yes, birding is for me? Um, I'm going to give you two. Um, one is, is local and one is abroad so to speak so the international one i was lucky enough to join a, a research cruise on the sa gallus 2 which is our prime um, antarctic research vessel and we went down to 
um, the pack ice in, in Antarctica um, and I was doing bird observations as part of the scientific team and there was one particular bird which I really, really wanted to see down there called the snow petrel. So these are pretty small, I mean about the size of a, you know, small Franklin or guinea fowl, but you know, it's pure, pure white, white as snow with this little black beady iron beak. And they only live on the ice in the Antarctic. You'll, you'll only see them at the ice. Now the, the cruise went down, um, we did five days down, a day at the ice and five days back. But the way it worked out is we, we arrived late afternoon at the ice and we had basically 12 hours of darkness at the ice and then turned around and left. So I didn't actually get to see the ice during the day. And I, I thought my chances of seeing the snow petrel are done because they're not going to be flying around and not be able to see them as pitch black. I've just got the, the kind of goldy yellow lights off the side of the ship to try and see these birds. I mean, there's a visibility of about 20 meters. And I stayed up. We didn't see one from you know, six in the afternoon until midnight. And I stayed up the whole time just watching, waiting, waiting, waiting to see this bird. And they were doing their ice sampling and things like that. And then just out of the, out of the blackness, this, this white bird kind of just ghosted in. And it was so surreal because this, you know, it's, it's pure snow white, but in the, in the, the, the like golden yellow light, it was almost like this little gold ghost flying around completely silently, just splitting in and out of the lights. And we watched it for about an hour and a half. And eventually, oh, wow. eventually there were two, two or three around the boats just coming in. And they were, I think they were curious about the ice samplers who were you know, getting mm -hmm. just trained off the side of the ship and, and getting onto the ice and taking samples and doing their research. Um, so that was just phenomenal to, to have such anticipation and then think that all hope was lost and then have this like ghostly experience. It was really cool. Um, and the other one was... Um, yeah, the local one, I think, which kind of turned me on to ornithology as a career was in the Kruger National Park in my third year of my BSc. I was invited out to join a PhD researcher by the name of Rowan van Eden, who's now Dr. van Eden, um, who was doing research on, on Marshall Eagles, uh, specifically GPS tracking work. And he needed a field assistant and either written a term paper for one of the researchers who was his, one of his supervisors and, and he'd said, well, here's a, here's a willing and eager third year who's interested in this kind of thing. Um, Andrew, do you want to, do you want to join Rowan in the Kruger? Of course, I don't need a second invitation. So I, I went off and I was, I was kind of interested in birds at that point, but um, I, I wanted to study, actually studied hyenas for my honors and I wanted to study leopards and lions and, the big furry charismatic things but um uh when when we caught our, our first eagle um it was this big female and i remember holding it in my hands for the first time while rowan fitted the gps device and just looking down at this bird and and just thinking you know i could definitely do more of this this is <laughs> birds birds are pretty cool um holding an eagle really turned me on to ornithology as a career so that was a really <laughs> special moment for me as well i think that's amazing and I think it's really, really cool that you've managed to get yourself into a position where your work is also part of your passion. Like that's something that very few people manage to get around to. And I think that's really, really special. Um, so you'd mentioned that part of your role at BirdLife includes sort of training these, the um, local guides. Is that the main focus of your work or is it, does it spread out a little bit further? 
So I'd say that's that's probably the the chief project that I run, but I, I do have other things that I, I need to do as part of my role. Um, so we also have a, a membership scheme at BirdLife South Africa. So anyone listening who, who wants to get involved and support this work can become a member. But we have special memberships for what we call birder-friendly establishments and tour operators. So Ooh. it's kind of an affiliation scheme. Um, they pay a subscription fee and we can uh, help market them to the birding networks that we have. So we have obviously pretty extensive networks um, and we're looked up to by birders. So they get that association and in turn, they pay a subscription fee and, and help market us back to people who go to uh, their establishments and go on their tours. Um, and we, it's, it's a really nice relationship where we help them to target um, birding markets and help them to serve birders better. And we can kind of set up these networks of different establishments that, that can cater really nicely for birders. So help service the, the birding communities in South Africa as well. Um, so that's that's another big part of my work. And then also more broadly, um, I'm responsible for um, overseeing AV tourism broadly and, and helping to uh, grow and develop the, the local and international market for this. So currently I'm working with a PR firm in the UK, for instance, to write up some media for them and some social social media content around birding and, and why South Africa is such a great destination. Um, I'm, I'm helping in the, the launch for the new, new Sassel Five Birds of Southern Africa book. So BirdLife's hosting that and I'm, I'm involved in that. So you know, any resources related to birding and bird watching. Um, I'm, I'm the person at BirdLife that you come and speak to, and we help promote that and make sure that, you know, we, we all the birders who, who visit South Africa and are based in South Africa have, have really nice uh, um, resources and links to information, things like that. Um, yeah. That's amazing. That's, um, I, th- I think it's really something that um, tourists can focus on in that, like, birding might get you to a, a completely different place than where you might have expected to visit. And I really, really like the idea of these sort of birding friendly lodges. Um, so how would you sort of um, tick a place off as being birding friendly? Would it be that they've got like an expert guide or are they doing particular things sort of in terms of conservation around the lodge? Sort of how would you, you rate a place? So we have an application process. So they, they have to actually fill in um, they do. We call it a self-assessment. So we have a, a set of questions that they have to answer, and 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 you've touched on some of them. So you know, do they have either an on-site guide or um, an active guide that they they can recommend for birders who visit the area? Um, do uh, do they have uh, bird books available for people who visit the area or binoculars for hire and um, things like that? Do they have checklist of birds in the area that they can give to people when they go out um, is there someone on site who can you know recommend places to go birding um, you know do they do they have any uh, disruptive activities so for instance we don't have any establishments that have um, quad biking for instance because that's proven mm-hmm. to be really really disruptive um, so we try and discourage those kinds of activities um, yeah uh, so there's a whole range of different things, and, and they, they score themselves on that. And then we do a bit of research looking at their websites and calling up a few references and that kind of thing. And then there's, then there's the continuous engagement. Um, I, I put together quarterly newsletters, and 
I include articles like, you know, how to how to garden for, for birds, you know, which indigenous plants do, do birds enjoy and how do you attract birds to your gardens and have feeders that are not harmful, you know, no no xylitol in your in your sugar water and things like that. Um, so, yeah, there's a continuous engagement and a really nice relationship there. Uh, if someone was interested in, um, you know, being involved in this newsletter, is that something that's freely available to anybody who subscribes to it, or is that specifically to the individuals who are part of this uh, BirdLife network? So, BirdLife produces a, a number of different newsletters. This this one specifically is for the bird-friendly establishments and tour operators. So I put it together as kind of exclusive content as a membership benefit for them. Um, but BirdLife South Africa also has also has more public newsletters that we put out on a monthly basis. Um, so that's that's more linking to our work and um, current issues in in bird conservation and that kind of thing. And, and that that is sent out to all of our members, but it's also available on our website. So it gets published online. People can go and check up on that. That sounds like a fantastic resource, especially for people sort of beginning with birding, wanting to sort of open up a little bit more of the the bushveld world than just the big five. So say for people who are sort of, let's call it intermediate birders, um, what resources does BirdLife provide for people who are maybe sort of almost pushing about 300 birds that they've already seen, getting into making their lists? Is there anything like that? Another thing that I do at BirdLife South Africa is administrate the South Africa Listers Club. So if you know any bird watchers, we are generally quite invested in our lists. Uh, we like to tick off new birds and see new birds as often as possible. And the Listers Club is a place to build a community of South African birders. It's a very proudly South African concept. There's a lot of focus in South Africa for some reason on birding in the sub-region of Southern Africa. So that includes all of our neighboring countries. But we at BirdLife South Africa are obviously mandated to protect South Africa's birds and as such have a proudly South African focus when it comes to bird watching as well. So the South Africa Listers Club uh, is for anybody who has seen 300 or more species within the bounds of South Africa. So that includes um, our, our 200, meter, 200 nautical mile, excuse me, um, economic exclusion zone out to sea. So there's a, a lot of water out there that you can uh, tick birds in as well if you have the opportunity to get out, out onto a logic trip or onto one of our uh, flock to sea voyages. So every few years, BirdLife South Africa, um, I want to say commandeers, but the right would be commissions a trip for the cruise company and we take birders out into the open ocean to go and enjoy some pelagic birds or um, seabirds. So that's one way to add to a list as well. And it also includes uh, Marion Island. So Marion is a small island in the South Atlantic that uh, is South African territory. It's South African foreign territory. So any birds seen at Marion Island, if you're lucky enough to get there, are included. And incidentally, uh, uh, BirdLife South Africa is taking a flock to sea cruise um, in 2021 to go and visit Marion Island. Uh, and there are still around 500 birds left. There are just over 1,600 or 1,700 birds sold. I'm not sure on the exact number at the moment. 
So there's going to be a cruise full of birders going down to Marion Island. This is a, a real once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, so, yeah, if you want to join the South Africa Club, you just log on to the website. I can give a link um, for you to put out along with the podcast. And you put in your name, your hometown, and your total, and that's literally it. And you can update that as you see new birds and get new lifers onto your list. Okay, fantastic. Um, actually, I have another question for you. So, if you could choose one place in South Africa or Southern Africa as a whole to go and do some some top birding, where would it be? And the second part to the question is, is there a particular bird species at the moment that you're looking to find? Mm, great questions. Um, <clears throat> I think if, if you if you're just targeting diversity, then the Kruger Park and probably the Isimangalisa area of, of Zululand are the most diverse in the country, and that's you can have some really, really fantastic birding there. Um, to give you a, an idea, there's, there's an annual competition that we run called Birding Big Day, which is basically a 24-hour bird race to see which team can um, spot the most birds within a 100-kilometer radius. So you've got a little search area and you go out for a team for the day and some crazy people start at midnight. Um, and the top teams in the country uh, are based in the Southern Kruger area, so between Barberton and South Kruger. Um, and, they, and they regularly get over 300 species in a day, which is phenomenal. Um, I, I, don't know how many, I don't know how many species are in the UK. Okay, for instance, but that's probably about as many as you could find in the UK. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's all we've got. <laughs> that's just one day, yeah. And I think the UK list has a whole lot of vagrants as well, and there's up to you know, walking mm-hmm. islands. And like that. So I think I probably don't visit um, Kruger Park, and that's my favourite favorite area. Um, and then, which bird am I currently looking for? Um, my biggest bogey at the moment and my most wanted bird is the Pell's Fishing Owl. Oh, so it's, it's a good bird. Good bird. Yeah, um, and a damn frustrating one. I've spent so much time looking for that thing along river courses in Kruger and elsewhere. It's this, for those who don't know, it's um, a nocturnal fishing owl, so it catches fish. Um, interestingly, you know, owls are known for being completely silent, but there's groups of owls like the fishing owls, which have foregone the silent flight and adapted their feathers rather to allow them to get wet. So they obviously don't need to be silent to hunt fish. So they're actually pretty noisy when they fly. Um, not that I'd know because I've never seen one <laughs> or heard one. But, um, <laughs> well, I have seen one and I did not know that. You've taught me something new today. Yeah. I did not know that they oh. weren't silent. If, I would recommend the Makuleki concession Right up at the north of Kruger, I've, you may find one there. Yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time on that Navubu Bridge. I'm sure you're familiar with oh. um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone says that's where you see them, and I'm starting to lose uh, faith in that statement. <laughs> <laughs> Some birds just evade you, though. I feel like there's a few species where everyone's seen them, and everyone's like, just go there and you'll see it. And I'm just like, I had one. What was it? There's one one of the rollers, and I've Racketal been trying to see this roller mm-hmm. for so long, and everyone's like, oh, it's just like hangs around, it's just super common. I'm like, it's not for me, I don't know, it's just like, 
doesn't like me, just like flies off whenever it senses that I'm around. <laughs> so I appreciate your struggle. <laughs> the, oddly enough, there is a there is a chap who works um, at Return Africa, just on the edge of the Levuvu there in Makuleki. Um, he is a, a local bird specialist and. If you are ever looking to go and find a particular rarity up in that area, he's the man to call. He'll most certainly help you find it. Um, so if you if you if you are still on that mission to find a pulse fishing hour, I would uh, definitely give him a look up. He will help you out. No worries. Yeah, you know, as you, as you, as I said, uh, you know, find a local guide. That's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. No, precisely. Hundred percent. Yeah. No, precisely. And it's um. It's quite it's quite interesting that you say that because some of the stories I've heard from them is uh, the pals fishing hours get so annoying that they end up throwing their shoes at them to get them to go away so they can sleep at night. So it's quite it's it's quite an interesting dynamic that way. One one would kill to see one, the others are quite happy for them to just go away for a bit. <laughs> um. So I think we're probably using up most of your time. So I'm very conscious that I I don't want to take up loads of your time so I think um rounding up my question that I'm super interested to ask almost everyone that we talk to is um if you had one piece of advice to give to um someone who was coming to southern Africa for the first time really interested to see all the different kinds of flora fauna whatever it might be what would be your advice hmm I mean, there's there's so much to say. Um, yeah, I, I think don't don't give all your focus to those charismatic big five. I know we talked about this already, but um, there is so much more that South Africa has to offer. And if you do a little bit of research and a little bit of online, um, you know, looking and, and look, asking online communities, I mean, there's whole Facebook groups dedicated to tourism in South Africa. There is so much to see. Um, spend some time, travel around different areas, uh, engage in, with different people. And, and yeah, South Africa has such a diversity of things to offer. Don't get caught up in, in just wanting to see one or two things um, and then calling it a day. South Africa is a diverse country. And I think, I think we're the third most diverse, biodiverse country in the world. So mm-hmm. get out there and embrace all of it. Yeah. Fantastic. I could not agree more. Yeah, that, is, that is the whole mm. whole point of Thatch and Earth. So, yeah, wonderful, wonderful advice. Well, Andrew, also, just, just, just on that note, thank you very much for your time. I mean, you've, you've really, really opened our eyes into a whole bunch of different um, aspects into the bird life world, as well as also just uh, as a general conservationist. I mean, like Phoebe was saying, that we've we've been in this side of the industry for, for quite a bit now, and it's it's really refreshing to have someone speak and feel like you're learning something new. I think we've both been sitting here having moments of like, oh wow, didn't think of it like that. So <laughs> again, your time your time is really appreciated, and it's it's also been very insightful. So thank you very much for spending a bit of time with us. Yeah, my absolute pleasure, guys, and and best of luck with this. Um, if I can. Just let people know that you know, the BirdLife website which is uh, full of information for birds. Um, if you want to learn more or just follow our work and things like that, that's that's the hub. We've also got all of our um, bird guide and bird friendly establishment details on there if anyone wants to find out more Fantastic. about the project. So, yeah, birdlife.org.za or, yeah, contact me. <laughs> Perfect. And how can, how can people contact you? What's the best way for them to get in touch? 
Um, probably on my email address. So that's andrew.deblock. So that's D-E-B-L-O-C-Q or Delta Echo, Brava Lima, Oscar Charlie, Quebec. <laughs> at, uh, yes, very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That's fantastic. Lawrence, Lawrence is a helicopter pilot, so you've just made his day. He has <laughs> got the biggest grin. <laughs> I'm glad I got it right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you nailed it. You nailed it. That's amazing. So that was really cool. It was great to hear Andrew's perspectives on bird life and how the tourism industry, in terms of birding, is being shaped, and that there are a few more things than what meets the eye in terms of birding. And it's quite encouraging to see that there are people who are willing to show the world that there's more than just the big five out there. Yeah, I think the work that he's doing is amazing. I think there's so much potential for bird-friendly lodges and local guides. Like, we often underestimate the power of someone who's grown up around these species and just the knowledge that they inherently have. And I think that's really, really exciting. Um, definitely make sure to go and check out BirdLife. Um, we'll add all the links to, to their sites and their social media in the, the description of the podcast. I would also probably just to end on it say don't be afraid to give birding a try. Mm. If you've never done it before, it just requires a few. You just need one or two on your list and before you know it, you are pretty deep into the whole birding game. And I would say again, don't knock it until you've tried it. I mean, we both started off not really thinking much of birding and now have turned into pretty avid birders mm -hmm. just because of the frequency of it and the fact that you can do it pretty much anywhere in the world, yeah. which is an amazing thing to that's, do. That's just the beautiful thing about birding. You can go on these amazing trips to try and find species, or you can sit in your garden and see what appears. And there's very few other things in nature and biodiversity conservation that allow you to do that. And I think that's really, really cool. 100%. So don't forget to like and subscribe to this uh, podcast if you want to read up a little bit more about uh, the bird life industry, or you want to read up a little bit more about some conservation topics and some hot burning issues. Uh, feel free to have a look at uh, Thatch and Earth website. It will be thatchandearth.com as well as check out BirdLife. If you'd like to subscribe to our Instagram page too, we are thatched underscore earth and we will keep you up to date with any new interesting developments. So from myself, Lawrence. And Phoebe. Thank you very much for listening to Thatch and Earth. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.